The whole thing is a human hack. We're, we're being hacked by these companies. We're being hacked by others to believe what we want um, for some comfort in us. Welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of Modern Learners and Change School, as well as an author, speaker, leadership coach, and parent of two kind of awesome kids. On this podcast, I talk to leading educational thinkers and doers, and we do a deep dive into some of the challenges and opportunities that face educators today. And I offer some practical steps for what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they'll live in. And it is hard to believe that we are entering the holiday season already here in the U.S. Uh, it's only a couple of days before Thanksgiving as I record this, and the real insanity is about to begin. And most of that insanity stems from the multi-billion dollar month-long war that we're about to embark on for capturing our attention. You don't even have to turn on the TV or go to Facebook to realize that the marketing beast here at the end of the second decade of the 21st century is getting bolder, louder, and even more unending. And couple that with the avalanche of media that's heading our way as we gear up for an election next year, and I am feeling pretty tired already. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that 2020 may be the greatest and most complex test ever for the collective literacy of our nation. Deep fake videos, Russian interference, super PAC ads, God knows what other stuff we're going to have to sort through and make sense of and try to divine truth in the midst of all that. No pressure, right? All of which makes this conversation on attention literacy with award-winning professor Alec Kuros timely, relevant, and interesting. Alec teaches at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan, and he teaches and writes extensively about the topic of understanding literacy in a connected world. And so in this conversation, we touch on how difficult the search for truth is these days, the idea of a literacy curriculum, and ways in which we can use technologies to keep our attention focused. It's a conversation that probably could have gone on for hours. But real fast, before we get to that, I want to remind you that I'll be co-leading the second Big Questions Institute with my friend Homa Tavanger at the Atlanta International School in January. Homa and I did our first BQI a couple of weeks ago in Philly, and I have to say it may have been the best two learning days I've spent in 2019. I can tell you we and our participants both left exhausted in a very good way. And I really hope you'll consider joining us in Atlanta as we take a deep dive into not just the questions that matter for 2020 and beyond, but how to make inquiry a focus for your practice and your school culture. You can get all the details at modernlearners.com labs. And don't delay because we decided we're only going to open up 30 seats for this event. So I hope you make sure you get yours today. As always, at the end of my conversation with Alec, I'll be back with three things that you can do right now to think a little differently about attention literacy in your practice and in your classroom. And don't forget, if you like what you hear today, please head on over to iTunes and give us some love with a review and a rating. And feel free to let me know what topics you'd like to hear more about in upcoming pods. But for now, cheers, everyone, and thank you so much for listening. Well, listen, Alec, thanks so much for taking some time to talk about this. This is such an interesting moment for literacy, I think, in lots of different ways. I, I'm uh, always struck by the adjectives in front of the noun, M much like what I talk about with learning. It seems like there's another adjective that comes in front of the literacy noun every single day. And it's obviously getting 
a lot more complex as the technologies change and as uh, people have more ubiquitous access to different ways of publishing and, and consuming and all that type of stuff. So really interested in your take on this idea of just literacy as how it's changing as a whole, but specifically attention literacy, because attention has become something that a lot of people are writing about, a lot of people are expressing concerns about, especially when it comes to kids and especially when it comes to like social media and devices and things like that. So what is your take on what attention literacy really is and, and what's the importance of thinking about that now in an educational context? So I think the first thing that we reckon with at some point is whether or not uh, attention literacy is a thing. We often think about uh, literacy in general being uh, reading and writing and we look at uh, the environment being the sort of the inter interchangeable thing. So digital literacy would be reading and writing in a digital environment. Uh, when we think about attention, it's really this idea of reading and writing. And I mean reading and writing in a much broader, in bro much broader terms from multimedia, multiliteracy perspective. Um, but we're, we're writing in a world that where, where attention is really difficult to find. Uh, it's one of those things that's been commodified. It's what every company is coming after us with. Um, and it goes back, like my understanding of this subject really goes back to uh, First Monday article when uh, Goldhaber wrote uh, a book around, uh, or a, an article around the attention economy and the net. And it was really this idea that the thing that's really scarce today is this idea of attention, that we, um, everyone's coming after us in a number of different ways. Uh, and all they want is our attention. And you can see that certainly with social media companies, uh, you know, that's, that's their main product is to get our attention. The number of page views, the number of times that, you know, we click on a button um, and, that, and that becomes a very difficult thing. So when we're thinking about whether or not attention literacy is a literacy, I think it has aspects of literacy because the, the fundamental idea here is how do we read and write? How do we create, how do we understand in a world where there's so little attention? And so is the challenge then being able to pay enough attention to things in order to then kind of make them coherent in the ways that we write about or, or talk about or, you know, begin to, uh, to create ideas and knowledge around that? Well, I think, there, you know, it's multifaceted. I think, first of all, is just reclaiming our attention, uh, thinking about um, how we, um, you know, cognitively or physiologically gain some of our attention back when we think of, um, you know, some of the tools that kids are using, Snapchat streaks, for instance, or, you know, Netflix or YouTube um, autoplay uh, you know, mechanisms are designed to make sure that we pay attention somewhere else. So it's, it's regaining and reclaiming our ability to uh, pay attention. And some, some people, we get into the idea of mindfulness. Some people might even think it's not just physiological or cognitive, it might be even spiritual to some extent. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's a fair idea in terms of how we actually meditate. You know, it's not all about meditation, it's about reclaiming our ability to think. Um, and, you know, this goes back, when, when thinking about this, it goes back to um, our, our better understanding of media. Like if McLuhan and understanding media back in, I think, 64, um, uh, talked about the idea of the light bulb, like the light bulb itself um, was, he, he described it as a, as a medium, but it's a medium without content. So for instance, if you set light bulbs into a room, 
you have people able to stay up longer, to write, to do whatever they want, to socially emerge. And it's sort of like the same thing with a smartphone. And we know that you know, putting a smartphone between two people creates a different context. So even with something devoid of content um, can change the environment around us. So that's, you know, that's when we you know, think about attention beyond the content itself. We have to think about what the devices and what the medium around us or the media around us do to the environment that in which we learn and, and talk and discuss to discuss with each other, share big ideas, et cetera. Like it changes the environment around us. So is that really the first step then to just interrogate the media, to take a look at the right. device or to take a look at the platform or whatever else right. and try to figure out what the goals of that device or platform are and then try to adjust the way that we use those, those spaces and those, those tools? I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, so thinking about tools that I use on a, on a regular basis, um, when I want to write, when I really want to write, not, not a connected writing, there's, you know, there's different types of writing. When I'm, when I'm cit citing and so on, but when I'm writing from the gut, when I've got ideas to get out of my head, uh, I might use a tool like Write Room, which is kind of an old school, if you think about your Apple 2E or 2C, it's sort of a green font, so, you know, on black. <laughs> And How old are you? You, know, there's, you, you must know, be really old or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that was, that's where I did my first writing, uh, if I think about it. But, um, you know, it's, it's basically, it's writing without any um, beeps or, or, or me, you know, going on a tangent um, because I want to learn something more about this and I don't get back to the writing. So when I really want to write, when I just want to get ideas on, on the page, that's something I use. Or if I'm watching YouTube, um, I, I'm a sucker for those related videos and I go down a rabbit hole real quickly. So I use a tool called uh, DFTube, which is distraction for YouTube. So I can turn off all of the related videos, the comments, so I don't read those. And so it's really starting to think about how do I actually, um, again, reclaim my attention through being able to um, cater to the environment around me. So do I kind of hack the environment to some extent? And I, I think to me, it, that environment piece, again, is, is the number one thing that we look at. It's interesting, isn't it, that people are actually paying money to apps to focus right. their attention, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> to strip out the ads, to, you know, do all sorts of things that take away all those, those, right. uh, those, those beeps and buzzers or, yeah. or whatever else. Um, it's kind of an irony uh, when you think about it. But um, so... Is it, so I guess it's twofold, right? I mean, I mean, we do have to know what the intent of the tools are. I mean, right. it, it's one thing just to turn off all that stuff, right? But it's another thing to do it with the context of knowing right. that, um, you know, I am being sold to or, or I am being, my data is being collected for whatever reasons. And I wonder the extent, what, what you think at least, I wonder the extent to which you think people are aware of that or, or even want to get into those weeds, right? Because I think a lot of people, when they start thinking about all, it gets overwhelming. I, I mean, it gets, I mean, terms of service isn't a great example of that, but nobody reads terms of service, even yeah. though that is where, in many cases, we find out what it is exactly that is being done to the data that's being collected on us or the way that we use the tool. So, yeah. You know, and think, just thinking about it from an education standpoint, do we have to educate kids around those things? And if so, how do we do that? There's a number of questions there. So I think it's, yeah, uh, sorry. You know, just, <laughs> well, that's great. No, to, to start off with, I think um, we, we definitely have to have a better understanding of how, what the tool, what, what these uh, apps, what these companies are doing uh, to us. And I think the terms of service is a, 
you know, obviously no one reads that, but if you did read it, you'd probably have a good idea of the very limited, you know, what they actually share with us, like in terms of what they do. We know that Facebook does a lot more than what they say in the terms of service and how they share, you know, they've been in trouble with that. And Google more recently has gotten to the spotlight around, you know, so they're telling us what they do to an extent, but there, there's a lot more in terms of, you know, what they do to us and what they do to our attention. You know, I, I think about last Christmas, I bought an instant pot, pot and, you know, I saw them everywhere. And I, I, I mean, I didn't have a clue what the thing was. I, I never used a <laughs> cooker in my life or whatever the thing is, pressure cooker. Um, you know, I almost expected it to be like an Alexa or something that I'd start talking <laughs> to it, but it wasn't very responsive. But, it, but it's that idea that, you know, at some point I decided to, you know, pull that trigger and, and buy an Instapot, um, you know, get it there. I, I use it once in a while, but not, not as much as I had felt when I bought this thing that was going to be transformative and change my life. But it's these, you know, that, that's targeted, targeted marketing. And uh, I think that's one of the companies that has done really well with targeting marketing. You don't see them on TV. It's all, it's all targeted marketing to a particular group and brand and so on. But I mean, this goes back a long time. If you think about, there's, there's a great documentary called Century of the Self, and it talks about um, how public relation companies and, you know, based on Freud, for instance, have shaped what we want and what we crave, like the idea of consumerism in the very, 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 as a concept itself, like post-war, you're thinking, um, you know, the economies, you know, during a war, World War II in particular, um, the economy did very well, but then people come back and they've got everything. They've got their house, they've got things. And so the thing that was missing from companies was a desire to have more than what you need. And that was really something that came after that. Um, so there were people who, like Edward Bernays was, a, I think, a nephew of Freud, for instance. And he used a lot of that, a lot of what Freud learned about these innate drives for something else to to market to people. So one good example was the... Um, why we have bacon and eggs for breakfast, why, you know, why that's a thing. It was never a thing before that, but it all started out with a campaign for, to, to consume more pork products. And so uh, Bernays was able to get a number of doctors to say something like you know, four out of five people believe, or doctors believe that a hearty breakfast is a, is a good breakfast. With a, with a cigarette afterwards. I'm sure. <laughs> right, yeah, basically. Marlboro <laughs> Mad. Right. <laughs> Something like that. And so somehow he was able to equate hearty breakfast with bacon and eggs, and that became sort of the, the, the American breakfast. And so it, it's, it's that sort of thing that we don't even know the, the origin of why we do the things that we do. And that has become, you know, a, a thousand times more amplified in everyday interactions with the web. Uh, so I think that's something that we have to really interest, you know, take some time to introspect, uh, uh, to, to poke at, to critique a lot more than we do. So it really isn't new, is it? I mean, it's this no, is something no. that's been happening for a long, long time. I mean, ever since we really yeah. became kind of uh, participants in the consumer culture. I mean, people yeah. trying to, I mean, I have an Instapot too, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Last Christmas, you know, my daughter was like, you have to get one of these and, right. you know. And I, I don't know exactly where she found out about it, but I'm sure it was, you know. I made rice in it. That's about it. And chili. Yeah. I mean, I made those things well. Before. Right. The <laughs> messages that she was getting. 
Um, how, do you think that a valuable part of this might be to get students to create this type of yeah. messaging? You know, because I remember when I was teaching way back when in my, um, in my media studies class, one of the yep. things we used to do was we used to create advertisements. We used to mm -hmm. create these types of campaigns and, and in that way, get a better sense of how language and, and how visuals and uh, obviously video and all those types of things have an impact on the ways that people think about and, and act upon the certain messages that they're getting. So to, to what extent would you maybe suggest that it's almost a requirement these days that we be able to create it and, and really get behind that curtain as well? Absolutely. Um, um, the, the best way to understand media is to create media. Um, and, and we're talking about you know, media, as you described, you know, something that brings out the emotional aspect. Like one of, the, one of the projects I do with my undergraduate students and graduate students to some extent is we, we take, uh, we create what are called Redux videos. So um, it's like a trailer, and you've seen probably a few of these, like where you have, um, you remix uh, the you know, scenes from The Shining and make, make it into sort of a romantic uh, comedy or something. So you actually, <laughs> right. depending on the, you know, the, the, the scenes you cut, the, the music that you, you use to, um, make the viewer feel a particular way, then you get to start to understand what media does when selected in a particular way to change attitudes. And we do that with you know, uh, you know, trailers like that where we shift the genre uh, of the movie, um, or we might do it with political ads, which is kind of fun too. So taking something that's totally out of context and making someone feel you know, like if you, if you cut, it, cut it at that particular point, it makes, may sound the, make, this speaker sound like a horrible person, but if you you know extend it to five more seconds, you understand. Okay, well that that's reasonable, right? So you know the sharp cuts. Like, how do we actually manipulate? And so the only way to do that is to manipulate it yourselves. Um, and, and I see you know lots of classrooms taking up fake news. They 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 create fake news um, in the class. They go through the process of creating fake news. Or with advertising, um, I saw a great project a while back. Um, it was done with kids who actually all got a budget. It was elementary kids. They all got a budget of like $50. Um, and what they were able to do was they created sort of Instagram-like um, square ads uh, of something they might want to, to, like, to, to basically run their ad uh, over Facebook. So it would be like a no bullying ad. And the kids would actually have to choose the demographic, they'd choose the target, you know, where they might do it. And there's some really funny ones. Like it would, one of the examples was like, buy your kid a dog or something like that. And it was like targeted advertising 22 to 45 in <laughs> with, within one mile of my house kind of thing. And it was, so, right? So right. it was you know, really, really super targeted. But, you know, we have to understand the mechanisms that shape us. Really. And there are people, um, you know, if you want to think about the sinister, um, you know, the sort of the evil um, anti-hero, I guess. I mean, these people are doing this all the time to us. I, this, is, this is their job. This is their living. So if we want to better understand what's happening to, to us, we have to really uh, look at the mechanisms uh, behind, you know, what's happening. And there's been some backlash these days too, you know, from actually the people who are writing the programs and the algorithms yeah, who have sure. come out and said, we really probably shouldn't have done this, yeah. but it's like the genie in the bottle problem now, right? It's, it's really difficult to all of a sudden take all of that back. And it's kind of an interesting segue into, you know, so there's that consumer piece of it, right? Where 
our attention is try people are trying to capture our attention in order to purchase something or to you know buy something that they're marketing to us but then there's also this kind of interesting moment where there's political attention now too right mm -hmm. and so you know we were kind of talking before we started here you know down in the states it's a really interesting moment for this because we we find ourselves i think in a place where we have people who are competing for our attention, but it's basically to confirm our bias, if you know what I'm saying, right? So one of the terms that I've been really interested in that's come up lately that I've read is this idea of an epistemic crisis, right? That we're in this space where there are two versions of the truth, and it's very, very difficult to now agree on what is true, what, agree on what facts are. I mean, if you look at the hearings that are happening in DC right now, I mean, there literally are two totally different interpretations of what's happening. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, potential to move people in this environment, right? So I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of just how attention or even just literacy in general plays into this idea of being able to identify and to uh, believe what's factual and what's not factual. I mean, how we've gotten to this point that's so tribal any sense of how we move forward from this? Yeah, you know, this is the toughest piece here. Um, you know, there's, again, back to, you know, why this is happening. There's a number of different reasons. Um, and it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. You know, are we hyper-partisan because of the filter bubbles? Or are the filter bubbles making us hyper-partisan or right. um, polar, uh, having polar ideas? Uh, and to be more divided than at any time in history. Um, so, you know, we do, we do need to look at Facebook and Google's algorithms in terms of how they uh, you know, keep us in this sort of joyous land where all of our, uh, everything that we believe to be just seems to be echoed by everyone around us. That, it, you know, it makes it pleasing to not have to run up against people with different ideas and beliefs. And so, you know, you can sort of gain, it's almost this snowball of epistemology or, or this, this our ability to just gather beliefs that are very much like ours. And so that's, that's one thing. And, and these are very, very powerful forces around us uh, in every aspect. And people aren't willing to, um, you know, log out of their Google account, you know, use DuckDuckGo or something like that, and, and try to look at things through an, un, uh, through a, an unfiltered lens, I guess. So, so that, that's very tough because basically what that does is it plugs into our, confirmation bias, right? So the ability for us to, um, uh, you know, it, it's difficult for us to ever make arguments that are, that are not our own. That's why debates in, in high schools are really important for people to take on um, differing opinions and actually try to support those, try to get a better sense to, to build some empathy about, you know, how someone else might see the world as well. So, so I think these are, you know, really difficult and, and powerful forces around us. Um, at the same time, I mean, I mean the, the trick here, though, is, you know, a few years back, I really did believe that you could use the technology to uncover the truth. And so you could go, um, you know, given all of what we see today with you know, deep fakes, for instance. Now I can, I can very easily create a video um, that I've totally fabricated that looks incredibly compelling um, with any politician, with anyone that I want to say whatever particular message on or have them say whatever message I want them to say. And so if we do find that, and, and the, te the, technic the technical ability is there, 
But the, the problem is today, I think people just don't care about the truth. There was a time when people actually cared about right. the truth. So right. we can get to the point where we can uncover some objective truth around what happened, but whether or not people care, that's the bigger <laughs> issue right now. And, um, you know, this, this idea that there are um, multiple truths, I mean, there is that whole subjective side of it. I understand that people have their own truths. That's a, that's a different thing. That's something that, you know, that I think is important in some ways. But when we think about, you know, what happened, what occurred at this particular point, that's sort of a different thing we're talking about. It's not, you know, my personal truth. It's what happened. It's what happened at that, on that day, you know, uh, you know, in a, in a sort of a physical way, I guess, versus how someone felt about what happened. I don't know. It's, it's a tough time because I, I really don't think people just, you know, or some people don't care about the truth as much as perhaps we did in the past. And it, it kind of begs the question, how did we get here? Right. I, I mean, how did we get to the point where a large swath of people maybe just don't really care about the truth? They just care about their day to day. You know, like how do they get through the next uh, 24 hours or the next week or whatever else? And all the other stuff really is, is, isn't relevant. I mean, especially at a moment when climate is, right. you know, such a, a looming issue, uh, but it's not even looming any longer. It's here. If we can't come to some agreement or consensus on truth around that, then we're going to have some real suffering ahead. When yeah. I'm doing a talk next week and I'm actually, one of my sort of web heroes was Zay Frank. And he was, and the reason I like yeah, him. Yeah, I remember him. What, whatever happened to him? Well, he's still around. He does a, a little bit of work here and there, but he kind of disappeared for a while. His website went down. And I mean, he was, he's someone that I really like because he was one of the first people that really got people to connect on the web. Like right. his 2006 um, project was the show. He did like a vlog every day. Right. And his sharp cuts and everything, it, it influenced the way we do blogging today. He was probably one of the sort of, sort of one of the unsung heroes of the early web. But one of the things, one of his talks, he's got several TED talks, but he uses a, uh, a term, this idea of to feel and be felt that everything comes down to the idea. Like when we, when we go onto the internet and we try to connect with one other person, it's always about either to feel or to be felt. That's, that's our sort of underlying reason we do a lot of this stuff. And so I live in, you know, the oil belt here in Saskatchewan. We have um, industries, you know, dependent on oil. And our oil in Alberta and Saskatchewan happens to be about the dirtiest oil that we can possibly have. It's this bitumen and, it's, and because of that and because... Um, um, because we can't get it to market because we have to get through the U.S. and we don't have, um, you know, uh, water to get it to unless you go through B.C. and they're not quite on the same political bend as others. Um, there's been a, a recent separatist movement that, you know, Western Canada or parts of Western Canada wants to uh, separate from the rest of Canada. But, you know, I can go on, on Twitter and, and laugh at these guys and I can say, you know, what are you thinking trying to separate from Canada and, and, and so on. But at the end of the day, I have to also realize that it's their livelihood. Like someone um, is in, uh, in a place where they can't pay their bills, they're used to a particular lifestyle, they're, they're you know, there's the real things that are happening. And so I'm in a place where, you know, I work uh, I have a great job. I have, uh, I, 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 you know, it's not manual labor. It's, uh, I, I get to teach and write and do the things I want to do. So I have to be very cautious about how I feel and how I talk to people like this. When environment can be my issue, I can talk about those things. It can, it can you know, I think it's, uh, 
that's a great thing, but I have to, at some level, better understand, like, what are these people going through? Um, why do they um, push so firmly against something like climate change? And I think just that understanding is really important for me. I don't know if it's important for them, <laughs> but right. that's, I can only control what's in my head. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. This, this, right now, I think, you know, when you go back to the, you know, the election 2016, there is this group that, you know, feels that they're the deplorables or whatever it was. And um, it's sort of that language around it. There are people who are just have seen enough, I guess, at some point, and they're willing to accept any truth you give them for a promise that something will change. And so it becomes, at some point, you know, you know, you're not dealing in reality anymore, but I'm willing to give up all of this for some belief that it's going to get better. Um, and of course, I mean, that's, that's what's happening here is you create villains. I mean, you, you, you create blind hope uh, in people that probably aren't the people that you should be believing or putting your blind hope into. <laughs> so it, it, it's really tough. And I, so you're, you're dealing with these forces. So um, at the end of the day, you know, does truth matter? It should matter, but it doesn't matter to some, uh, to enough people that it has, it's really changed um, what we're dealing with today in society. Which is, like I said, kind of a scary place to be. I, I do think if there's any upside or optimism here, it's that I, I have seen a lot of schools begin to attack this by really putting a lot more emphasis on empathy and, and developing kids' empathy, de developing their cultural awareness, developing their abilities to, to talk across differences, even though in a lot of schools that's really hard to do because mm -hmm. there isn't that much cultural diversity or even in many places, a lot of kind of political diversity in terms of how they, they see and think about the world. Do you think that uh, education is the way to overcome this? Or, and, and I guess in the context of what we're talking about that it actually, not to put another adjective in front of the noun, but there's almost like a, 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 another literacy maybe that, that it has to do with truth, that has to do with epistemology, that we need to be, have some sense of how do we come to an understanding of what really is true? And then how do we negotiate the differences in that with other people? I mean, I, yeah. that sounds like that sounds like a, a whole yeah. like course of study, right? It's it's true. Uh, you know, it's foundations of you know knowledge. I think that's that's what it comes down to. Is you know what we what do we believe to true to be true? Uh, and, and like there are differences when we talk about truths, and and it's interesting because if we get into you know right left, for instance, uh, you know when we where we see the idea of subjective truths mostly originated from uh, those with left views or progressive views. Um, so it emerged from one side, but in some ways, um, I won't get too political, but it becomes this, the same concept becomes weaponized by another group. This idea that you can have multiple truths that, you know, there are, uh, that subject that subjective truths come down to the idea of, if I said it, it's obviously true. And it's not the same concept. And so it became conflated in many ways. And, and um, I, I do think that education is the way, I think it's the only way to deal with a lot of this stuff. Um, even if you look at, you know, uh, groups out of the United Nations talked about things like fake news and uh, the threats of, like I, I mentioned, uh, like the deep fakes, for instance, earlier. Like this is such a big and global threat that it's, this is something that national security interests interest come around. 
And so we have to have a better understanding of how we can actually spot fakes. And when we do see something a bit suspicious, how do we act after that? So if some politician tells us to um, you know, grab our guns and you know, go after those people that are you know, trying to take away for our freedoms, maybe pause and think maybe this isn't the person that actually said this. Like I'm worried about that on a daily basis that we're gonna see some fabricated message from a person in authority that people take arms against each other uh, and there's for no, whatever reason. There's no question either that the speed with which we consume messages now yeah. make that even more fraught, right? Because we, we don't naturally any longer take a lot of time to figure out what the message is and then figure out whether or not it's something we want to pursue further or, you know, just move on to the next thing. We scan a lot where we could potentially get to a point where we're watching 10 seconds of a deep fake video and then just kind of letting it go. But that still has a huge impact, right? In terms of how we think about that. So, I mean, is this a curriculum? I mean, is it a course? I don't know. I, I happen to be kind of anti-curriculum, anti-course, in, you know, in, in, in terms of like packaging everything up and, and splicing it out into different ways. But there has to be probably a way of thinking about this that goes across all disciplines, all kinds of ages. I don't think it has to be a course in itself. I, I do think it needs to be embedded in everything. It's sort of a, a skeptic's mindset. Um, what you know, Hemingway called uh, the crap detector, or he used right. a, a more offensive term for it, but it's that idea. Um, like when you mentioned the speed before, there's a quote that's misquoted in the first place. You know, a lie travels around the globe while the truth is putting on its shoes. And it was um, <laughs> right. basically, you know, um, Mark Twain supposedly said it, Jonathan Swift, Swift said it, and it's, I, I think it's a, a fake one. And I did find it a while back. It was actually by, uh, they believe it was attributed to Swift, uh, false, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after it. And I, I like that idea. But it's, it's, it's this constant thing. So it's, although it comes out of a bit of a scientific literacy, I think, perspective, this sort of commitment to some level of objectivity has to be in every subject that we look at. Um, whether it's English, whether it's history, whether it's science or math, we have to look a lot closer at being able to kind of figure out when something looks a bit suspicious um, and certainly not to act upon it. And, you know, from a media literacy or a digital citizenship perspective, you know, when we think about working on the web, you know, just not sharing that Facebook, <laughs> that Facebook quote that you saw or that meme that you saw, these are all really important things. So it's, it's not just trying to identify or be able to have that crop detector um, sending you warnings that there's something wrong here. It's, you know, what do we actually do about it? Um, when you see it, what do you do with it? If you can identify it, do you tell the people or how do you tell the people that this may be fake and will they listen? Um, and of course not, you know, sharing something without reading it and so on. I think that's a really important piece. But the way that we, you know, the way that we connect, um, even the understanding of, of memes, like a lot of, a lot of what we see, the political memes and, you know, just memes in general, things that make us, whether it's okay boomer or something else, all of these things, I mean, it goes back to Dawkins, uh, the idea of thought contagion and how um, ideas spread through the world from person to person in a way that a virus spreads from person to person. So we have to be able to inoculate ourselves from some of these mistruths, um, from these memes. So we need to understand it first, but it needs to be something that goes across all subjects. And then we need to act appropriately or not act at all when it comes to you know, what we read. So you think in 10 years we're in a better place or uh, 
Uh, I don't know. It, it, it seems like it's a race right now. It's a race for... It does. I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right, too. And that's something that I've been feeling a lot as well. The urgency of this is, is like becoming more and more palpable every day. But yeah. It's so incredibly easy. And you know, I've been, uh, for, you know, for the last 12 years, I've had people believe they're in relationships with me. Yeah, uh, right. Catfishing things on, on a general basis. And the thing is, the people that are um, tricked the most are the, I would say, probably some of the least skeptical people. On They're... they're they are, they're believers in everything. They're strongly um, religious, um, not that religious bad in itself, but sometimes it'll take you to a place where you um, have a lot more trust in humanity than you might, than you should. Right. Uh, or you believe in things that you might not have, should. Uh, um, so, so the people that are tricked are, are it's really these, they ha- the scammers are hacking humanity. Like what can I do to get this person to really trust me 100%. Um, it's a cr- classic gigolo, I guess, in some ways, but they do this, you know, online. So it's, that one of the things around this is it's, this is just, it, the whole thing is a human hack. We're, we're being hacked by these companies. We're being hacked by others to believe what we want um, for some comfort in us. And, you know, we have to be able to understand that to be able to really get over this to fix it. So you think we'll do that or not? No. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> you kind of were winding around that question. No, yeah, you know. You know, the, the problem is some of the technology tools or the, right, that we put in, we, we rely so heavily on some of the technology to do this for us. A while back, the most harebrained thing I've ever heard, you know, for instance, for, for revenge porn or whatever it's called, you know, for people using intimate images of you right. uh, without your permission. Facebook said, we're going to stop this. What we're going to do is if you happen to have any images of you, um, that you wouldn't want to be out there, send them up through Messenger to Facebook to our people, and we will hash them and make sure they don't show up on our system. But the idea that you have to send them to someone first was so ridiculous. So technology is just so badly configured and, and invented, I guess. There's got to be much more human solutions. And, and really, unless we can really focus on this in school, like unless there are decent... Uh, integrated, comprehensive media literacy, information literacy programs in schools, which we just do not have. This is not going to go away. This is, this is curriculum. It's curriculum that's integrated across all subject areas. And I know, again, you're not, you're not into adding more curriculum, but this is the essence of what we have to do to be able to think and to think critically. This is all we've ever needed to do. We don't need to teach every single app that comes out. We need to spend that time critiquing that app, critiquing everything around it, that whole ecosystem that makes us want apps um, more than the app itself. And I think this is just another example of, of the, the difficulties of this moment for educators, because in many cases, we don't understand this. And it's, it's just difficult for us to teach something to kids that we ourselves don't fully understand. So it either requires that we have to upskill really, really quickly, or I think probably the better solution is, is that we, we enter into this with a real uh, sense of inquiry that, yeah. you know, we're going we're gonna to ask really big questions and kind of find those answers together yeah. um, with some, some understanding, at least, of the context that's happening there. Well, Alec, thanks so much. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. And you've reminded me that um, this stuff has been going on for a long time. It's just now accentuated with the tools and the technologies that we have, the apps and the, uh, you know, the big tech giants who are 
are really out to make sure that that uh, they can capture our attention and and move us in the direction that they uh, they want us to move. So um, the problems may be a little bit greater today, but they certainly are not new. So appreciate you appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So what can you do right now after listening to Alex's thoughts about attention literacy? Well, I've got three suggestions for you. First, make a list of all the devices or apps that may be competing for your attention these days. Don't forget wearables, traditional media, and of course, social media. And then do a little reflection on your own ability to keep your attention in check. Second, why not poll your students? When are they able to keep focus? And what distracts them? Then talk about ways they might reduce some of the noise in their lives. And finally, check out our free white paper on rethinking the definition of literacy at bit.ly slash M-L-L-I-T. That's bit.ly slash M-L-L-I-T. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Enjoy the crazy of the season, and we'll see you next time. Cheers.